Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. How long do all of you spend looking in your closet when you get ready in the morning? It doesn't matter if you own a small or large amount of clothes. Women usually spend a long time thinking about what to wear. We have to choose the clothes that are right for the occasion. We can't just walk out the door wearing the same thing that we've been wearing around the house. We have to find the right color to wear and find the matching shoes and bag. That is why women often say when they're getting ready to go out that they have nothing to wear. But recently, I saw a picture on the internet of a closet that most women would not understand. A certain man placed a picture of his own closet on Facebook. The closet was full of the same exact gray t-shirts and the same dark gray hooded jackets. The closet was full of just these two kinds of clothing. I questioned if this picture was for real. But as I found out later, this closet really did exist. This particular closet actually belonged to none other than the CEO of Facebook himself, Mark Zuckerberg. As the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg is one of the richest people in the world. In 2016, he was voted the sixth richest person in the world. But it was shocking to see that his closet would be so simple. He was asked why he always wore the same exact gray t-shirt, and his answer was surprising as a picture of his closet. And this was his answer. I want to spend all my energy into creating the best ideas and providing the best service. What he was saying was that he did not want to waste his time deciding what to eat or wear. He already had so much on his plate, thinking about the company that he had created, that he did not want to use his time deciding what to wear in the morning. I'm sure that there are people out there that would disagree with his fashion choices, but I found that his choices had a real meaning. Mark Zuckerberg is not the only person who thinks this way. There is a person that we think of when we talk about iPhones or iPads. That's right, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, who is well-known CEO of Apple, only wears a black t-shirt or black turtleneck, jeans, and a pair of sneakers. Steve Jobs also agrees that this way he does not have to worry about what to wear every morning. I found out that there were so many high-ranking CEOs out there that believed in the same concept. They all did this so that they didn't have to waste a part of their day on deciding what to wear. They did not want to be bothered when they had so much to think about with their companies. The last thing on their mind was what to wear for the day. They wanted to spend that amount of time in coming up with new ideas and thinking about more important matters. When you look at the lives of these people, you naturally notice what they believe to be the most important part of their lives. They considered their jobs to be the most important. They made sure not to waste their time on anything else and to concentrate fully on the jobs that they were given. This showed how much love they had for their jobs. 
This makes me think of what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This makes me think about where I place all my passion and my time in my life.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is defining disciple, based on Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to find with me Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew chapter 28, what I want to do is uh, look at these two passages of Scripture and think about, over the course of two messages, uh, what is a disciple and what does it mean to make disciples? Since this is what Jesus has commanded us all to do, again, not just missionaries around the world, but every single one of us has been commanded to make disciples of all the nations. So how do we make disciples? We need to know what a disciple is, and then we need to think about What does the Bible teach when it comes to how to make one? So Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, what I want us to do is I want us to read Jesus' initial interaction with some of the men who would become his first disciples. I want us to read that initial interaction with them at the beginning of Matthew, and then I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 28 and read the last interaction he has with them in this book uh, before he ascends into heaven. So his initial interaction, his last interaction, and in the process, I think we're going to see a pretty clear picture of what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples. We won't dive into both of those in this message. We'll look at the first, what does it mean to be a disciple? And then the next message, we'll dive into what does it mean to make disciples. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So that's initial introduction to discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, and Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Follow me, Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Then, so that's his first interaction with them. You get to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus gathers together with those four disciples and seven others at that time. Eleven disciples went to Galilee, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right. So with these kind of bookends in the book of Matthew, let's think together. First, what does it mean to be a disciple? What I want to do is kind of unpack it here and then think all throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, but really all over Old Testament, New Testament, what does it mean to be a disciple? And I mentioned in the last message that there's a document that kind of expands on this that you can find at Radical.net with all kinds of Scripture footnotes and references. You can dive in deeper on all these levels. But if you were to say, okay, what is a disciple? How would we say Scripture defines an answer to that question? Well, here's the best attempt that I would put before you. So disciples are fundamentally, they're followers of Jesus. They're people, men and women, who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus as their Savior, which is exactly what we looked at when we talked about the gospel and conversion. So Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So these are people, disciples, who have turned from their sin on themselves, trust in Jesus as their Savior. They've died to themselves and surrendered their lives to him as Lord. You think about other passages here in the gospels. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 24, when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. If anyone's going to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He must die to himself. They've died to themselves and surrendered their lives to him as Lord. Think about Galatians 2.20. Maybe one verse that sums up the essence of discipleship better than, well, many others. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I've been crucified with Christ. I've died to myself. I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Disciples, followers of Jesus who have died to themselves and surrendered their lives to Jesus as Lord. So think about that imagery. I no longer live Christ lives in me. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. So for a disciple, Christ now lives in them, which transforms everything about them from the inside out. And all that leads to what I want us to talk about are six primary marks of a disciple. So the first mark that we're going to talk about is a transformed heart that occurs at a point in time when a disciple places their initial faith in Jesus. And the rest of the marks we're going to talk about, those other five marks, are found in increasing measure as a disciple grows through faith in Jesus as a member of his body, the church. So if you were picturing this, I want you to picture it almost like it's concentric circles. So concentric circles kind of starting with a small circle at the center and then a circle outside that that's a little bigger, circle outside that that's a little bigger, outside that, outside that. Picture six concentric circles. And I hope on a variety of different levels, this will be helpful as you think about not just what it means to be a disciple, but when we start thinking about what it means to make disciples and help people grow in Christ, that thinking about concentric circles in this way will be helpful. Because what I want to show is how the life of Christ taking root at the core of who we are begins to transform everything about us. And as we become, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, we become followers of Christ. 
that foundation, I'm a follower of Christ with Christ living in me, that begins to transform everything about the way we think and feel and act and relate to others and think about our lives and our very purpose in the world. It all starts with the core reality of Christ in us. And that's what happens. So what I mean when I talk about the core circle and and this mark of a disciple happening at a point in time is we've got to think about what happens when someone initially becomes a follower of Jesus. They receive a transformed heart. So if you were writing down six primary marks of a disciple, the first mark would be a transformed heart. So disciples at their core, at the core of their being, are spiritually regenerate. They've been forgiven of their sin and are now indwelled by God's Spirit. So this is, again, fundamental essence of what it means to be a disciple. To be filled or be indwelled by God's Spirit, forgiven of all your sins, having a new heart, Christ living in you. So the first mark of a disciple is that he or she has been forgiven of their sin. You just think about that. Let that soak in. Like all your sin, all my sin, all of our sin before a holy God is totally forgiven. He remembers it no more. He doesn't count our sin against any of us. He is our Father. We're His children. This is an awesome thought. That God has not only as judge declared us righteous before Him, but that He has as Father welcomed us into His family as sons and daughters. So what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You're a son or daughter of God. He is your Father. He loves you as his child. What an awesome thought. J.I. Packer wrote in a great book called Knowing God, his chapter on adoption, which is just an excellent chapter. He said, what is a Christian? He said, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So disciples have been acquitted by God the judge, adopted by God the father. That Gracious regeneration of their hearts has triggered a glorious transformation in every disciple of Jesus. We've been brought from death to life. We're new creations who now live as servants of the King, heirs of His kingdom. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow in holiness as God gradually transforms us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. All of this while we hold on to the sure hope of full and final future glorification with Christ. Oh, there's so much there that we could unpack, but I just want to put out there the reality. When you turn and trust in Christ, you become a child of God, a servant of the King, heir of the kingdom, empowered and dwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, now in a process where you're growing into the image of Christ. That is the first mark of a disciple. You have a transformed heart. Then changes everything about you. So let's start to work this out. So that's the first mark of a disciple. Now think about how that affects Well, second, a transformed mind. So your heart, new heart, new life in Christ, then begins to affect the way we think. So disciples of Jesus have a transformed mind. They're biblically grounded now. They believe what Jesus says. To use language from John chapter 15, so the words of Christ abide in us. 
transforming everything about us. Disciples of Jesus. Now, trust the truth of Jesus and view that we view the world around us through the lens of God's word. As we abide in Jesus, we read, we hear, we study, we understand, we memorize, we meditate on his word, and he molds our minds to become like his. And we're continually, as a result, being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. You think about Romans chapter 12. Talks about the transformation that happens in our lives as disciples. And Paul says there, don't be conformed any longer to the power of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind. As we read, study the word, are taught the word, then we begin to grow into the image of Christ more and more because we begin to think more like Christ. Our mind begins to be transformed by his word. To use language from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we begin to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Christ is literally transforming the way we think. And the more we know him, the more we receive his word, the more we think like he thinks, the more we begin to think Christianly. So disciples think differently than the rest of the world. Now this, this doesn't happen automatically, like just like that. You're all all thinking like Christ and his word is totally determining everything you think. Like that happens gradually. That's why the first mark of a disciple, transformed heart, happens at a point in time that then triggers a process whereby that transformation begins to take over every facet of our lives, starting with our minds, where we begin to think according to his word. That then leads to, so third mark of a disciple is a transformed affection or transformed affections. So not just the way we think is transformed by Christ in us, but the way we feel is transformed by Christ in us. Disciples are deeply satisfied, desiring what Jesus desires. This is so key because I think many times we have a hard time connecting our faith and our emotions. So on one hand, we are tempted to connect them in a way that's unhealthy. Like faith is just dependent on emotion. And however we feel just kind of go up and down, our faith goes up and down with our emotions. On the other hand, oftentimes we have a tendency to disconnect faith from emotions and we just say, well, I want my faith just to be focused on my mind and not on our feeling. And so there's, there's lack of feeling in our faith, neither of which God has designed for us. He's not designed us for you know, us to be on a roller coaster of emotions and our faith just going up and down according to that roller coaster. He's also not designed for us to disconnect faith from our emotions. The picture that we see in Scripture is when you trust in Christ, it affects your emotions. He transforms your affections. You begin to desire Him, delight in Him. So following Christ is not just about duty. It's about delight and joy. That's the whole point. Like Our pursuit of, of peace and joy in life has led us where? It's led us to Jesus. Jesus is the source of peace, joy, and life for us. He's not just saved us from our sin. He's satisfied our souls. What does John 6 say? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and eat from me and you will never be hungry again. Come to me and drink from me. You'll never be thirsty again. So the beauty of the New Testament, when the New Testament teaches about discipleship, is that Jesus doesn't just save us. He satisfies us. Which then think about the implications of that. Disciples, then, we grow to participate in spiritual disciplines, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of delight. 
So we, we worship, not because we have to, because we want to. We want to exalt God. We pray. Why? Because we crave communion with God. Why? Why do we fast? Because we hunger for God more than even food. Why do we confess sins? Because we're grateful for the opportunity to confess sins. Why do we do mission? Because we love God's glory more than we love our own lives. So this is where I would just ask you to examine your own heart and life as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, do you participate in spiritual disciplines, worship, prayer, Bible study, fasting, witnessing, evangelism even, out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of delight? And if, if you say duty, that doesn't mean you're not a disciple, but it does mean God desires for you to grow in experiencing delight in Him. To with the psalmist be able to say, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. My soul will be satisfied in you as with the richest of foods. Like for that to be our heart, that's what God desires. He desires for us. And in this a glorious truth that God desires for you and me to be satisfied in him. So let's not live for anything less than that. Let's live for joy and peace and life and satisfaction and delight in Him. Disciples are designed by God to have a transformed affections, to love Him more than we love the things of this world. So love for God will push out love for the things of this world. You start to think about how this uh, affects the way we fight sin in our lives. Oftentimes, I would say every time we sin, it's because we believe that doing this is going to be better for us. It's going to be more fulfilling for us than doing, doing things our way. is going to be better, more fulfilling, uh, more desirous than doing things God's way. And so we do what we think is going to bring joy or satisfaction only to find that it doesn't. So how do you resist sin? You resist sin with superior satisfaction in God, superior delight in God. You realize, no, it's always better. It's always more satisfying for me to do His way, to do, live according to His word. And then when we're tempted by sin that says, do this, it will satisfy you. No, no, no. I know that's not going to satisfy. Like, He can satisfy. So the more we're satisfied in God, the more victory we have in sin against sin in our lives. So disciples... I have a transformed heart at the core of who we are that begins to transform our mind, our affections. Keep going out. Next, transformed will. Fourth mark of a disciple, a transformed will. Disciples are humbly obedient. They do what Jesus commands. So John chapter 15, as Jesus is talking about abiding in him, he says, abide in me, abide in my love, and you keep my commandments as you abide in my love. The whole picture is a life that says, I want to obey him. It's the overflow of abiding in him and enjoying his love. So put it all together. As in our minds, we're filled with his word, with our desires, we're satisfied in him. That then leads us to obey him, to see imperatives in the scriptures, commands in the scriptures as invitations from Christ to experience the joy of life as, he, as he's designed us to experience it, to walk according to his word and have him conform our ways to his will. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. 
So the disciple of Jesus has a transformed will. We do what Jesus says, which then leads. So I want to finish this out, and then I want to think about some implications of this. So fifth mark of a disciple flowing from that is transform relationships. So disciples are sacrificially loving. They serve, they love as Jesus serves and loves. So Christ in us obviously begins to affect the way we relate to others around us. So we've been, we've been reconciled to God through Christ. So we now continually work toward reconciliation with others in Christ. We're forgiving one another freely, serving one another selflessly. We lay down our lives as members of local churches to love one another in those churches. And then that compassion of Christ in us begins to expand beyond the local church as we care for our families, the global church, the lost, the poor. You look all throughout Scripture, you'll see a mark of a disciple. First John chapter 3, a mark of a disciple is they love one another. They lay down their lives for other people. They love their neighbor as themselves. Second commandment, Jesus gives us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you see that mind, will, heart, affections, focused on loving Him, and then flowing from that is a love for others. Disciples are sacrificially loving. We have transformed relationships. That's the fifth mark. And then all that leads to the sixth mark of a disciple. And I want us to put all this together. Sixth mark of a disciple is a transformed purpose. Disciples are missionally engaged. They make disciples who make disciples of all nations. So this is where you put Matthew 4 and 28 together. So follow me, Jesus says. Fundamentally, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means you're a follower of Jesus. And when you follow him, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Which is interesting. So from the very beginning, to be a follower of Christ is to be a fisher for men. To to be on mission with Christ. Then you look at the very end, and what did Jesus say to his disciples? Now you go and you make disciples of all nations. So to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus, is to make disciples of Jesus. So this is for every follower of Christ. We, as disciples, are intended to be disciple makers. As followers, are intended to be fishers. So, compelled by God's grace, disciples of Jesus are captivated by God's great commission. Jesus has not just transformed the way we live. He's revolutionized our entire reason for living. We live and die to share the gospel of Christ, to see the life of Christ reproduced in others, to teach the word of Christ to others, to serve the world for Christ by praying for, giving to, going to people around us, people around the world for the sake of God's name. This is why every disciple lives. This isn't just for a special group of disciples. We are all called to make disciples of the nations. So let's, let's put this together. A couple of implications. Uh, one, notice how in Scripture what we see is Christ in us transforms us from the inside out. And so if we're going to grow as disciples, we need to constantly come back to the core of what it means to be in Him, to be forgiven of our sins, to have repented and believed in Christ. This is why the gospel is so key. We must preach the gospel to ourselves constantly, remind ourselves we're in Christ not because of our own merit, because of His mercy, that He has indwelled us with His Spirit, that His Spirit lives inside of us. We're forgiven of our sins. We're children of His. He's adopted us as, our, as His children. He is our Father. To live out of the overflow of that, to realize this is my identity. This is who I am. To continually come back to that, to rise every morning, realizing who you are in Christ, who He's made you to be. He has transformed your heart. 
And then, flowing from that, so to say, God, then transform my mind. Lord, help me to think more like you and to get into the Word toward that end, to read His Word, to study His Word, to memorize His Word, to meditate on His Word. That's what it means to be a disciple, to let His Word abide in us and transform the way we think, that it just flows from us, that it flows through our mouths, that it flows in every thought, every decision we make is being led and guided by His Word. And then that begins to transform our affections. We begin to not just follow Christ out of duty, but out of delight. We begin to want Him, desire Him, love Him, enjoy Him, walk with Him, and all the emotions that go with that. But our affections are now driven by Christ, which then affects the way the decisions we make and the way we turn from sin and the way we obey Him. Why? Because we know from His Word what He's called us to do and we desire to do what He wants us to do. We have a transformed mind, transformed affection that leads to transformed will. This is so important. Many times when we think about our battles with sin, and I'll take credit for, for the negative part of this as a pastor speaking to people. So often I've just said, when it comes to sin, just stop doing that or start doing that. And yes, yeah, there's a place where we need to talk about the will and decisions we make, but if we don't realize that our decisions we make are based on our minds and our affections, then we'll never really be able to battle sin out here when it comes to our will. Think about it. Think about Genesis 3, the very first sin in the world. So they ate a piece of fruit in disobedience to God. That was the decision they made. But that battle with sin started right far long before they ate that piece of fruit. Well, you look at the beginning of that chapter, and what does it say? The serpent came to Eve and said, Did God really say and causes Eve and Adam to question God's word? So you see the battle of the mind there. Is God's word really true? Is God really good? Does he desire what's best for us? Then that led to desire. When they saw that the fruit was, was appealing, pleasing to the eye, they wanted to taste it. So there's a desire there that then led them to eat the piece of fruit. Well, it all started with a mind doubting the goodness of God and the Word of God and desires that began to turn away from all the great things they had in God. And all of a sudden they started thinking, well, that apple looks better. That piece of fruit looks better. And so they ate it. And they disobeyed God. So how do you and I fight sin? Yes, we need to tell ourselves, don't do this. So think about any struggles that you or I have with sin. We keep kind of going back to it. Well, why do we keep going back to it? What needs to happen in our minds when we begin to fill our mind? What does Psalm 119 say? How can we keep our way pure? By living according to your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need, what does God's word say about the struggle with sin? How do I meditate on God's word? How do I fill my mind with God's word? And then God changed my desires so I don't desire that. So Replace those desires with desires for you, for your glory, for your goodness, for holiness, for things that are better, and to focus on those desires, and then to let that lead to this battle of the will out here by a transformed mind, transformed affections that lead to change in the way we live and the decisions we make, then lead to changes in our relationships. And then, so last circle, this transformed purpose, Disciples missionally engaged. Disciples make disciples of all the nations. I'm convinced that this is one of the greatest uh, misunderstandings in the church, particularly when it comes to mission.
So there's actually somebody who can be passionate about the spread of the gospel to the nations, but doesn't go overseas as a missionary. And I just thought, well, if you're passionate about the spread of the gospel to the nations, then you become a missionary. But then I started thinking, well, what does that mean for everybody else who doesn't go overseas as a missionary? Does that mean we're not passionate about the spread of the gospel to the nations? Nobody else? Only those who are passionate about the spread of the gospel go to the nations? No, no wait a second. Passion for the spread of the gospel to the nations? That's not just for missionaries. That's for every single follower of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. And the Spirit of Christ, we saw it in the last message. The Spirit of Christ wants the world for Christ. So, do you have the Spirit of Christ in you as a Christian? Well then, do you want the world for Christ? you have the Spirit of Christ? He wants the world for Christ? Of course you do. I, I pray you do. And so this is the reality. We have this tendency to look at mission as, well, that's for missionaries. Instead of, no, mission is for followers of Christ. Every disciple of Jesus has been created, called by God to be a part of making the gospel known to the ends of the earth among the nations. So this is where I want to challenge you as a disciple of Jesus. Yes, to live in this reality of a transformed heart. Jesus has put His Spirit inside of you. He's forgiven you of all your sin. So let Him transform your mind and your affections and your will and your relationships and ultimately let Him transform your understanding of the very reason, the purpose you're on this planet. You are here as a disciple of Jesus to make disciples of the nations, to be a part of a global plan for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is not just for missionaries. That is for every disciple of Jesus. It's there from the very beginning. Follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Stare at the very end. Disciples, every one of you, go make disciples of the nations. And so this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means to live, to breathe, to make disciples of the nations. But may God give us grace to realize that disciple making among the nations, global mission is not just for a few people. It's for every single one of us as followers of Attraction for me. 
the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown and exchange program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Youngin Winston, and you are now listening to A Good News of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. Last time on Good News of the Gospel, we discussed and organized how the fact in the first two chapters of Genesis relate to the sin introduced in chapter 3. Yes, we stated that the actions of both the serpent and Eve portray all three of the words in Hebrew that have the meaning of sin. Yes, they twist God's words, went against God's words. As a result, they did not meet the standard of God and we were able to sin through both Adam and Eve. But the thing that I remember the two types of trees in the center of the Garden of Eden can be called the tree of life and the tree of death. It makes me sad to realize that we are able to learn from the Bible that mankind has chosen death over eternal life. Yes, that's really sad. They did not eat the tree of life they were permitted to. They decided to eat from the tree of death making the decision on their own to leave God, making this a very sad story. 
We also discuss the meaning of death in the Bible. As you stated earlier, death means a separation from God. We talk about how it means to part from God. That's right. Today we will be taking a look at death. We will be discussing in depth about the death that comes into our hearts as a result of sin. I know death is not a subject of topic that we enjoy talking about, but we're not able to understand fully the gospel if we do not understand death that we face as a result of sin. This is why we need to look closely at death. There are many definitions that people of this world give to the word death. Death is something that everyone is mad with. It's strange to find out that there are so many definitions. It's also strange to see so many different definitions of death when everyone is met with the same death. This just shows that many people do not know the real meaning of death. We discussed last time about the meaning of death through the Bible. Let's take a look at the definition of death from the dictionary. What does it say? Well, if you look up death in the dictionary, it states that it is the end of the life of a person or organism. If you look up the word dying, it simply states that it means on the point of a death. The world views death as the end. It is a stop to all the activities of life. Death means to disappear and an end to everything. This is what the atheists often say. This is why they believe that their life on earth is everything. That's why they believe that they must do and experience everything in their lifetime in this world before they die. But this is the belief of people that do not belong to a religion. Most religions believe that there is life after death. Most religions also believe that your actions while living in this world decide if you go to heaven or hell or paradise or hell. There are some religions that believe that your actions in this lifetime decide mm -hmm. if you come back to life as someone or something else. As you come back to life multiple times, they believe that you are born into more goodness or into someone that knows all. That is why they try to live a good and innocent life. But this doesn't make any sense. If people come to life more and more as an innocent and good person, then shouldn't this world be full of more good people? But as you know, the world is becoming full of evil. That's a good point. You're absolutely right. If people come back to life as a better and good person every time they are reborn, then the world should be full of good people. But we all know that that's not true. So I guess their theory has been disproved. Humans have gone out and disproved the theory through their actions. I personally think that it's good to believe that your behaviors in this lifetime will affect how you live in your next life. But one important factor we must realize is what the standard is. We must know what standard to live by to know where we will live in our next life. Do most religious believe that you must do more good than evil. That is the most rational answer to the question. However, then it means that if you live your life 51% of the time doing good, since there's more good than bad, then it's okay. That is why they 
preferably want to live a good life instead of doing evil things. That's right. The sad part is that the Bible does not support all this at all. All our thoughts and actions should be based on the Bible. Don't you think it's important for us to ask, what does the Bible say about this situation? That's right. Adam and Eve both failed to remember what God told them didn't think that it was important. That is why they listened to the serpent and was led to sin. That's a good point. That's why it's so important for us to know what the Bible tells us about death. The Bible divides death into three types of death. Most of you probably already know. The Bible first talks about the death of our physical bodies. We discussed last time that the meaning of death in the Bible means to be separated or to fall. Then what would be the meaning of physical death? If death meant to separate, wouldn't death of our flesh mean to separate from our flesh? That separation would mean the separation of your flesh and your spirit. That's right. The Bible tells us that the death of the flesh is the separation of our flesh and our spirit, and this death came because of the sin that entered us. This is evident in chapter 3 of Genesis. There is also evidence of this in the New Testament. Let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin enter into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is a very famous verse. That's right. This verse is very important. It says, because all sinned, death spread to all men. This tells us that the reason why we are faced with death is because all the people have sinned. The fact that the result of sin is death is proven in front of our face. But we as humans decided not to believe this fact. Even though all mankind in history have died, all the people of present are dying, and all the people in the future will die. People are still searching for the reason why we're dying and researching scientific ways to stop this from happening, even though that is not where the answer is. Again, it looks like they're trying to control death on their own. Yes, it's a fight they cannot win if they don't repent from their sins. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is also another famous verse. It says, The wages of sin is death. If we elaborate, it means that the reason why our flesh dies is because of sin. Other religions are not able to give an answer to the why we must die. Science accepts the fact that we must die and proves that we do. But they can't tell you why we must die. The reason why mankind must die is because of sin. Now, the second type of death that the Bible introduces is the death of the spirit. If the death of a flesh is a separation of our flesh from our soul, what is the death of our spirit a separation from? Is there anything to separate from? It doesn't mean to separate from our spirit again. The death of our spirits means the separation from God. This type of death is death that entered us even before the death of flesh. A separation from God? This is the death 
that Adam and Eve was a face with at the Garden of Eden, right? Yes. When we think of death, we all tend to think of the death of our flesh first. That's why when one eats from the tree of death in the garden, one can assume that no one will be met with the death of flesh. Because Adam and Eve were not met with physical death, one can assume that God is wrong, but that is not true. Yes, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says, For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. They thought that on that day, when they ate from the tree, they would physically die. But their spirit died, right? That's correct. They were thrown out of the Garden of Eden that day. They were separated from the God that they had a relationship with. Because of Adam and Eve's death of spirit, we are all born with a separation from God. But the problem is that people do not realize that they are dead in their spirits. Why is it that people do not know they are dead in spirit? Why is it that they don't know? It's because the dead do not have feeling. You're right. Just like people who are physically dead do not know they are dead. People do not know they are dead in spirit because they were born with their spirit dead and they have not experienced living with the spirit. That's why it's mentioned many times in the Bible that God saved us from our death. I remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us God made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Yes. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Anyway, we will talk about being alive next time since the main topic today is death. We must remember that we were dead in our spirits and only alive in our flesh. Yes, dead in our spirit. It never really hit me in the past about my spirit being dead. But now that my spirit is alive, I understand that my spirit was dead in the past. That's correct. Now let's take a look at the third meaning of death. What do you think that is? Isn't this second death? That is mentioned in Revelations, the eternal death. That's right. If you take a look at Revelations chapter 20, verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of the fire. It is explained more clearly in the next chapter of Revelations, in chapter 21, verse 8. Will you read it for us? But for the cowardly and unbelieving and vile and murderous and immoral person and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with a fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It lists out all that will be headed into the second death. Yes, that's right. 
This second death is eternal death. It means that it will last for eternity. There is no end. Many religious people, even members of the Christian faith, believe that this second death is not eternal. They believe it's a form of punishment, and some think that they will be punished for a given period of time, ask for forgiveness, and then move on to heaven. But this is never mentioned in the Bible. The Bible does say that this second death is for eternity. For example, let's read Revelations chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of a God, which is a mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with a fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's right. It says that there will be no rest day and night. Jesus also tells us in Matthew chapter 25, please read for us verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus also mentioned the eternal fire. That's correct. Paul also mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. After hearing this, I think it explains perfectly of a death that we are talking about. The second death is to pay the penalty of an eternal death away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is the second death, right? Yes. The reason why I mention and read scriptures on how the second death is for eternity is that I don't want you to misunderstand. Don't listen to those that tell you that you will have a chance for forgiveness after the second death and that it's not forever. The Bible definitely states that the second death will be for eternity. Are you saying that there are people that believe that we will have a chance after our second death? Yes, there is. I'm not going to mention who they are, but some believe that after death, they go to a special place to be punished for their sins. And after they are finished being punished, they move on to heaven. Some believe that if the family members that are still part of the world give a bigger offering, then the one who is dead will move into heaven faster. They believe this by saying God gives equal grace to both good and evil people. Then, if there are some people that actually believe those things, then they won't try their best while living in this world, believing that they will have a second chance. Yes, 
If you misunderstand it that way, then you will be met with a great failure, and you will never be able to take that back. Regretting won't help. Just like Jesus said, it will lead to gnashing of teeth, to the ones that coerced you to believe wrong, and to yourself for believing in them. That's right. There will be gnashing of the teeth. Now there is something that we must think about. It is emphasized that our second death is eternal. Our second death for eternity is emphasized. It shows that it is different from our first death. So you are implying that our second death is for eternity, but our first death is not. Yes, the first death enters all mankind. This is both the physical and the spiritual death. Of course, there are some special cases like Enoch, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter five, and Elijah from Israel, both of whom were not met with physical death. And taken up by God's grace, this is a special case and is not common. We must look at it as a sample of what salvation is. Let's go back to our main point: first death. After both our physical and spiritual death, we still have a chance. This is different from our second death, which is eternal. This should give us hope. The first death enters all of us. But we do not have to receive the second death that is for eternity. I get it. I feel the grace from God just at the mention of a second death. Mankind full of sin, we who chose Satan over God, we who chose death over life, we who chose to go against God's words instead of obeying Him, deserve the penalty of a death. But God divided death to give us one more chance, right? He made it possible for us to change at our first death, and made a path for us not to face the second death, right? Yes, that's right. When we looked at the second death before, we mentioned that it is written in the Bible. We took a look at Jesus's words in Matthew chapter twenty-five, verse forty-one. Let's take a look at him again. Then he will also say to those on his left, "Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels." These words do scare and frighten me. Yes, it's frightening, but we can tell from Jesus's words, whom this eternal fire. Is intended for. You're right. It says that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. That's correct. The eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels that went against God. It wasn't meant for mankind. It's because people decide to follow the devil and his angels that they send to the eternal fire, right? Yes, they died spiritually. We who die physically became far from God. We broke God's plan for having a relationship with us, and all the people chose their own path to head for their second death. They did not want to follow God's words. They followed the devil and his angels, and began to have their characteristics. They did not look for God because they died spiritually. 
So the gospel is how God saved us from this death. Yes, that's right. We discussed sin and death during our last two sessions. I don't know how much of the sin and death that we talked about has stayed with you, but please don't end your learning with the end of this lesson. I hope that you take the time to meditate on your own sins and death after this program. Yes, as you mentioned, I think it is important for us to study in depth about sin and death so that we can understand more in depth about life. After looking at all this, I think that we as humans are always faced with a choice of which path to take in life. It started in the Garden of Eden with the choice of life and death, God and Satan, righteous and evil, truth and lie. We're still faced with these decisions today as we live our Christian lives. All this leads to our choice of heaven or hell. Now that we know who to choose and what to choose by studying the Bible, I think that we should all make the right decision without any regrets. The goodness of the gospel Today we talk about the three different kinds of death mentioned in the Bible. Yes, we did. Death of flesh, spiritual death, and the second death. We studied all of these deaths mentioned in the Bible. The second death is for eternity. But the death of flesh and spiritual death is not forever. We do have a chance to turn it around. Next time, we will discuss... What chance is? Yes, I hope that you go through this week making the right choice. The goodness of the gospel. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. Yes, I hope you all are victorious. We'll see you next week. For those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Mark Zuckerberg and his reasons for having his closet made me reflect on my own life and how I get up every morning and spend all that time deciding what to wear for the day. I began to think about Apostle Paul as I read about how Mark Zuckerberg did not want to waste time on less important matters 
but to concentrate and place all his time on the work that he was given. Paul tells all of us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, to make the most of our time. He tells us not to act thoughtlessly and waste our time on the evil things of this world, but to use our time wisely to understand what the Lord wants us to do. We have to think hard about where we spend the time that we are given. Are we the people that spend less time on doing the things of the world so that we can spend our precious time concentrating on God? Or are we someone that spends less time with our God to spend more time on the things that we feel are more important in our lives? Do we sacrifice our time with God with worldly things or do we sacrifice our time with worldly things for God? Let's think about Jesus' words to us again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I hope that we all take the time to reflect on what we treasure in our lives. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless.
calls me home Here in the power of 